Hello, and welcome to show number 2330 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. You know, and there's a line in the book that I kind of surprised myself by writing, which which I think is true, though, which is that I'm kind of almost more stymied by the vision I still have than the vision I've lost in a way. You know, and, and, and an example of that is like, you know, it's very tempting to use my vision to tell when it's safe to cross the street. And increasingly, I'll notice that I'll cross the street and be like, yep, coast is clear. And then see halfway across the street that I totally missed that there's a car that stopped, thankfully, but like, you know, I didn't see it, you know, so I really, it's much safer for me to listen and cross the street in the blind way. And in the book that today's guest wrote, he has some very interesting insights into the transition to losing his sight gradually. We'll talk with Andrew Leland about his brand new book, The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight, about his personal journey, his transition through the various stages of sight loss, and what he learned along the way. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Andrew Leland and is related to his profession. I think this is advice for writing, um, which is that I think oftentimes, whether this is you know the education system's fault or just writing's fault, but I think people think of writing as having a sense of obligation to it, that like when you write something, you need to present a really coherent argument and you need to say all the smart, important things that connect to a subject. And, and to a degree, that's true. But I think a piece of writing really only feels alive when it's animated by the thing that that really just bugs you and sticks in your craw or gets you excited. And oftentimes that is a surprising thing and not necessarily the like thing that the teacher or editor or reader in your head cares about. And so I think my tip of the week for you is find that thing that just dogs you and write about that instead of the thing that you think you're supposed to write about. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by... Inclusive, an e-learning platform built for the blind community to learn technology, occupational, and career skills to help you reach your employment goals. More information is at www.clusive.io. That's www.clusive.io. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Andrew, and then we will flow right into a discussion of his brand new book, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And the book is brand new. We scheduled this show to air one day after its release date. Well, today's guest is a man of many hats. So, Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us what those various hats are? Sure. Uh, my name is Andrew Leland, and most of the time I wear a baseball hat because I think of it as like a cane for my face, <laughs> you know, and also blocks the glare. Uh, lately, I've been way more sensitive to glare um, because of the retinitis pigmentosa, but I think you meant more metaphorically speaking. I'm a writer, and my first book is called The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight. 
And it's a nonfiction book that combines memoir, my own experience of gradual vision loss from retinitis pigmentosa, along with reporting and um, research and history into sort of what blindness means in the broadest possible sense. But um, some of the other hats that you have identified that I wear sometimes include podcast host. I hosted a podcast for KCRW called The Organist for many years. I've been a magazine editor for The Believer magazine, as well as a freelance writer and podcast producer for magazines like The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine and, and podcasts like Radio Lab and 99% Invisible. So you referred to yourself as blind due to retinitis pigmentosa, but when we had the video feed on, you looked like you were sighted. You were looking around the screen, you're wearing glasses. Yeah. Good eye there, Nancy. You know, I think one thing I learned in writing this book is that blindness is a spectrum. And I still feel some kind of imposter syndrome, I guess you could say, calling myself blind. Um, and I think in different situations, I feel more or less confident calling myself blind, or it feels more or less accurate. I think compared to a person who's not legally blind, I, I am blind. I use a screen reader. I use a white cane. I've learned to read Braille. You know, I, I don't read print anymore. You know, to me, these are things that blind people do. And I don't see the point in separating myself away from a blind person while also recognizing that the experience of somebody with less vision than I have is a different experience. Well, I've been with Pete for 40 years now, and over that time, his level of residual vision has gone from miserable to nothing. Hmm. You know, he's been blind the whole time, but yeah. boy, having that little bit of residual vision for navigating uh, makes life a little bit easier. Every little bit helps. But I guess the, my question for you would be like, do you feel like you were kind of a fake blind person before and then when you went from low vision to no vision or to you know like minimal residual vision that you became more of a blind person like how do you think about that that question you know the funny thing is most times i don't really think of myself as a blind person i just think of myself as a person who happens not to be able to see hmm. but i've been kind of doing this routine for so long that as you point out at the end of your book it almost becomes ordinary yeah. And I think for that reason, I share and I aspire to that level of comfort with my vision or lack of it. But I guess like one of the things that I've come to understand from really immersing myself in the world of blindness and writing the book and in just sort of losing enough vision that it I couldn't kick the can down the road any further is that you can sort of arrive at blindness even before your vision catches up with you. And, and there's an emotional component to that. And there's a practical component to that. And for me, it's it's never a perfect matchup. I feel like I'm always, you know, either too far ahead or too far behind. You know, for me right now, like magnification still works to the degree where I use a combination of magnification and speech to do most of the computer work I need to do with the awareness that I want to keep my Braille skills up and developing so that at some point magnification will give way to Braille. And ideally, that'll be a pretty seamless transition. And there's like a million things in my life that kind of have that structure where it's like, I kind of felt like I was like, why on earth am I learning a screen reader right now? You know, and then all of a sudden I hit the point where I was like, I don't know how I would have finished this book without my screen reader. So that's sort of how I approach it. And I think why I feel comfortable thinking of myself as blind, even if somebody else might say, you're a low vision, you have nothing to do with blindness. As you point out, 
Sometimes you go through these transitions where gradually your sight decreases and you have to become familiar with different tools. And I think of it as the more tools you have at your disposal in your toolbox, you can use the appropriate tool for the appropriate task. And so I've always tried to keep abreast of new technologies, try new things. What might I need in five years, for example? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's happening to me constantly. You know, I think that's the way RP works is that it's like this just very gradual, long, you know, sunset kind of. And, you know, I've noticed even like in the last couple of weeks, a change in my vision. And because I've been so aggressive about learning all these skills, you know, there's still an emotional component to it. There, there's still frustrations to it, but it's not like I'm caught, you know, with, I hate the expression, you know, I caught with my pants down, right. Where I'm like, uh Oh, you know, now I guess I better learn how to use a, a cane. So, I, so I think that if I were to follow that other line of thinking too far and think like, okay, well, I'm not really blind. I'm looking around the screen. I'm wearing glasses. Like, what do I have any business with a cane or with a screen reader? You know, I'd really be dooming myself to a terrible experience. So for me, like, it's actually vitally important that I feel comfortable and confident and calling myself blind now, even if there are these trappings of vision still, because without them, I'm going to be hosed. It would have been terrible. So really like, like identifying as blind, even while I have vision has been a lifesaver for me. Your book, The Country of the Blind, is a particularly interesting story of making the transition from being fully sighted, living in a sighted world, but then dealing with a bigger transition later in life. You know, unlike me, who kind of had to deal with these issues from when I was young, I think it's a lot harder as you lose your vision older, you've come to rely on your vision and a certain way of doing things, and it's a difficult transition. But it seems that as you've said, you've embraced a lot of these changes and technologies that could assist you, and you've managed to make that transition reasonably seamless. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a it's a tremendous luxury that I have in some ways that like my job for the last three years was to write this book and like research for the job was like going to blindness training centers and like reading about how different people have handled these challenges from, you know, ancient times to the present. You know, and not just the practical stuff, but emotionally too, I think like it would have been difficult to to make the space to really interrogate like all of the feelings, all of the ideas, all of the skills without the gift of of having this opportunity to write this book. Um, so that helped a lot. I gotta say, like I think, you know, I met so many people out there who don't have that luxury, who are like, you know, trying to manage a family and a career in the midst of, of vision change or, you know, sudden vision loss or, or or gradual vision loss where they have to kind of like carve out time to make those transitions. And so in some ways it was a challenge writing the book, but also it like really gave me a lot of opportunities that I don't think I would have had to make that adjustment the way you describe it. You've also yourself gone through one of these intensive blindness skills training programs. Yeah, it's funny, like people kept on asking me like, so wait, are you here as a writer or are you here because you want the training? And the answer was really both. You know, I was I was there because I I knew it would be interesting to write about and I was really interested in the NFB in particular became a sort of one of the the book is not about the NFB, but the NFB I think crystallized a lot of questions I had and ideas around blindness for me that so I, I kind of felt drawn to them again and again. And I went to the Colorado Center for the Blind in, uh, near Denver in Littleton for about two weeks. And then I went back more recently for another two weeks. That was transformative for me for many reasons, you know, kind of socially, emotionally, but, but and also practically in terms of the skills I picked up there. 
Along those same lines, do you think you wrote this book primarily for you or for others to learn from your experience? Well, that's a good question. Um, my feeling about writing in general is that if you're writing it for yourself with with the right intention, you know, not writing it to get rich and famous, but, you know, writing it to like, because it's a question that really dogs you that, you know, you really feel like it's important to to get to the bottom of and to explore, I think then automatically the book becomes for other people. And for me, that's true. And when one of the tricky things in writing the book was, you know, my publisher is a mainstream commercial publisher. They did not buy the book for me to write it for blind people only, you know, I mean, certainly they were aware that it would be of great interest to blind people or family members of blind people, but I had to write the book for a general audience. And so it was one of the biggest challenges in the writing process and the editing process was figuring out like, how far in the weeds am I, you know, like, does anybody really care about like the two different kinds of screen readers, you know, or like the battle between the ACB and the NFB? Like, is that, is that too far in the weeds of like only blindness nerds care about this stuff? Or like, is this something that everybody cares about? And, you know, I think it was pretty clear from the beginning, but it was interesting to like see the threads all the way through of the ways that this experience of losing something that, you know, the world tells you is so fundamental to your identity, to your ability to, to be a functioning member of society, like the way that losing that is not actually the the sort of pure disaster that people tell you it is. And, you know, finding a way through it and and sort of like debunking a lot of the the fear and stigma that surrounds it. You know, I think that's a story that's bigger than blindness. You know, I think you can point to a lot of different experiences that people go through that have a similar shape. And so my feeling about who the book is for, you know, absolutely, I wrote it for myself, you know, in terms of like, a chronicle of my journey and like an engine for my journey and really motivating me to figure this stuff out. But I think I, I really was careful to have that experience in a way that it would resonate with not just other blind people, but, but everyone. You must be a pretty proactive person. You describe in the book how even as a child, you figured out that you were a little bit differently able than other people when you were walking into trees on hikes at night and your friends would make fun of you. And then in movie theaters, you always wanted to be the last one out of the movie theater because you couldn't see in the dark as people were leaving. You didn't want to crash into people. And eventually, you kind of figured out yourself that you had RP before anybody else did, didn't you? Yeah. But yeah, I think I'm proactive. I mean, I don't think I'm like unusually proactive in that way. I think I was, I think I'm a social person. And I think for me, it was this awareness that uh, I wanted to be you know, not necessarily like other people, but I, but I was always aware of my relationship with, with my friends and with, you know, my classmates and and the world. And so I think as it became clear to me that this was some difference that I had, I think it felt pretty urgent for me to figure it out because what did it say about me? You know, was I just a clumsy person? Was I like, did I just not, couldn't figure out, I wasn't looking hard enough at night, you know, like, and so I think, I think it had some urgency to it in part not because I was like scared that there was something wrong with my body, but just because it it was changing the way I related with other people in a way that I found kind of troubling. And you did research on the internet to f- kind of figure out what the issue was. Right. Yeah. My dad is a techie, you know, so I had like, this was, this was back in, you know, probably, I don't know, 90, 93 or something. And he had bought me a modem. So I, you know, it was pre Google, but I, but I fired up the modem and um, there's not a lot of causes for night blindness in adolescence, you know, so it, was, it wasn't too tough to find RP. And then a couple of years later when a, you know, an actual retinal specialist confirmed it, 
um, I wasn't totally shocked because it, it seemed like a reasonable conclusion to come to. Now, one thing I think is difficult as people lose their vision when they're older, they see an ophthalmologist that will diagnose them and say, you have this particular problem, but they're not often the ones that direct them to the support and resources that can be helpful to them or suggest technologies. How did you get plugged into that whole network of resources and services? Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, and that was my experience as well. You know, I had these doctors who would just sort of say like, yep, middle age, you'll be blind without any sense of like what that meant or how I would cope with that. Not helpful. Not super helpful. Yeah. And um, so for me, I think, you know, I got in touch with the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind when I moved here, you know, but I'd already had some of that proactive research that you were talking about. So I knew about the NFB and I knew about you know, some tools. And it just, it was just like a really slow process that I think was matched by the slow decline in vision. You know, I think if I had gone blind suddenly, it would have supercharged a lot of these decisions, but because things were so slow, I was just sort of like, you know, it's a little bit like having a kid, right? Like, well, we should probably clear all this stuff up since your due date is in six months, you know? And then by the time, oh, it's just a blob who like stays in his cradle. So we don't have to worry about like putting those plastic things in all the plugs. And like, you can sort of stay one step ahead of it. And I feel like I was that way with my vision where I was like, I guess a cane might be a good idea, but I'm just going to like carry it folded up for a couple of years, you know? And so I think it was just a very gradual process that tracked my vision. You talk somewhat in the book about how this impacted your interaction with your wife. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, one thing that someone said to me that I think is really true is that, you know, if you're married to someone and it's interesting talking to you too. I wonder what your attitude will be about this. Um, but like, if you're married to somebody who's going blind in a way like you yourself are going blind, uh, obviously metaphorically, but like both members of the couple have to understand blindness um, for it to be in their lives together. And, you know, in the same way that I just described being like maybe one, one or two steps ahead or, or possibly behind or kind of, you know, maybe both, like it's a little bit like a marathon, right? You're, you're sometimes you're falling behind pace. Sometimes you're ahead of pace. You know, I would say that that my my partner Lily, um, you know, had a similar trajectory where she, it would take her a minute sometimes to to figure out what was going on. You know, and 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 I think it's totally understandable. Like I, I say that not to be like, why couldn't she have been more aware? Because like I wasn't aware. You know, like 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 one example that's in the book is one day she was just like, why did you do such a bad job wiping down the counter? You know, I'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, and she was like, you like wiped down a you know two thirds of it, and just like there's like a whole desert of crumbs over there and was kind of annoyed, right? As any as any partner would be like, I thought you were cleaning up the kitchen tonight and it's a disaster. You're making Nancy giggle. <laughs> <laughs> this does this sound familiar, Nancy? Um I try to be more understanding because I know why there's a quarter of the countertop that's still got crumbs on it. And so I just kind of give him some feedback instead of yelling at him. But yes, that happened. Yeah. You know, and I think I think that the tough thing about somebody who's going through the process of, of vision loss rather than somebody, you know, maybe who's been blind for a long time is that like, there's like a sensitivity around that experience that makes it hard to hear the criticism of like, you know, and I think like a real criticism of like, you know, your partner in the family, you gotta, you know, if you're going to clean a kitchen, clean the kitchen, you know? And, and so I think there's like a process of like me accepting like the new level of vision that I'm at. And then it makes it much easier to say like, you know what, you're right. Like I got to figure out how to do to, you know, cause I don't want to be somebody who just says, oh, well I'm blind. So like, I don't clean the kitchen anymore. You know, like that's not fair. And that's not reasonable. Like, yeah, I'm not going to drive 
our kid at the soccer practice, but you know, we can, first of all, he doesn't play soccer. So I don't know where I invented that reason, but, but second of all, you know, we can take a cab, we can take a bus or, you know, she can do that while I do something else like wipe down the counter. And as you point out, while you're going through that transition, you're both learning because the situation is changing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've been really grateful to her for being willing to go through that learning process because it's not, you know, it's not easy for me, but I think it's tempting to say like, you know, you, you have no idea, you don't understand, like, you know, you don't have any of the difficulty, but, but I do recognize that it's difficult for her too. And I think the more that we can feel aligned in that way, the better we'll, we'll get through it together, I think. Well, and I think it's a little bit easier for me than I assume this is different with you and your wife. When we met, Pete had a little bit of residual vision. He was still using magnification, and thank goodness, because 40 years ago, screen readers didn't really exist. You couldn't understand mm. a word. But when we met, I understood he really couldn't see anything that was useful. I mean, except mm -hmm. for these three-inch high characters. And so the transition from that to nothing really didn't change our life. He never used power tools. He never drove. He, he never read the mail, mm -hmm. you know. And so the residual transition in our relationship was really pretty seamless. You mm -hmm. know, just like Pete was saying that he's almost glad that he never had normal vision because... As a child, he was already learning how to integrate his other senses into doing mm. things that everybody else might have just relied on their vision. Yeah, right. And in our family, it's different because, you know, when I met Lily, I was still driving. Um, I think I didn't drive at night. And I remember, like, we had an early date where it was a sort of white knuckle thing where we went, we drove to Point Reyes Beach near San Francisco. And we kind of got lost and we stayed later than we meant to. And I had borrowed someone's car. And I remember like the sun was going down and I, it was like, I was like a vampire or something, you know, like, or a werewolf. Like I, I got to get home before the sun sets, you know, racing the sun. Cause I could, I felt safe driving during the day, but as soon as, as night fell, it felt really unsafe and she didn't drive. So, you know, those were our early moments like that, you know, in these days I don't drive, I don't ride a bike. I use a cane everywhere I go, you know, but I still think you're right that there's, there's more transitions to come that we'll both have to go through together. The other thing I think is interesting about our relationship is I've taken my blindness sort of for granted for so long that sometimes Nancy seeing it from the outside will suggest, why don't you do it this way? Or why don't you do it that way? And, and I'll think, wow, that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's an example of like what that person meant when they said that both members of, of the couple are blind in a way. Cause I feel like that's an example of Nancy thinking like a blind person, right? Like kind of like problem solving and, and figuring out the tools that one might need to do something non-visually. Yeah. Well, it was a great book to read. And I thought, as I pointed out in the beginning, the um, part where you talked about your blindness being almost ordinary these days, because you've made the transition pretty seamlessly was a great way to end the book. Thank you. It's so interesting, you know, thinking about this conversation, you know, starting out with Nancy pointing out that I have vision, but, you know, it's just a constant process of like accepting my blindness, but then being aware of the vision that I have, you know, and there's a line in the book that I kind of surprised myself by writing, which, which I think is true though, which is that I'm kind of almost more stymied by the vision I still have than the vision I've lost in a way, you know, and, and, and an example of that is like, you know, 
it's very tempting to use my vision to tell when it's safe to cross the street. And increasingly, I'll notice that I'll cross the street and be like, yep, coast is clear. And then see halfway across the street that I totally missed that there's a car that stopped, thankfully, but like, you know, I didn't see it, you know, so I really, it's much safer for me to listen and sort of cross the street in the blind way. And there's just endless examples like that. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to get Andrew Lee Lin's book, The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight, and how to contact the author. Well, Andrew, if people want to read this book, maybe you can remind them of the title and tell people where they can get it. Yeah, it's called The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight, and published by Penguin Press. And you can find it anywhere books are sold, from your local independent bookstore to Libro FM or Audible. There's an audiobook that I that I read. And um, I it'll be on Bookshare and Bard. Um, yeah, pretty much anywhere you find books, you can hopefully find this one in the US. And do you have a website? Yeah. It's my name, Andrew Leland, L-E-L-A-N-D dot org. And if people wanted to reach you, how would they do that? My email address is on the website, but it's just my first initial and last name at Gmail. I'm always psyched to hear from readers or people with tips because I my plan is to continue writing about not just blindness, but disability more broadly. One thing that writing the book and writing some of these other magazine and, and radio stories has showed me is that sort of disability culture is not only it's having a moment right now where there's a lot of really interesting people doing really interesting projects, but it just it, it connects with so many other parts of the world that I think even any if if a reader, an average, you know, mainstream non-disabled reader thinks they're not interested in disability, I'm excited to write stories that kind of prove them wrong and say, well, actually, like if you care about music or if you care about literature, you care about culture, like disability is right there. Uh, politics, you know, history, it's all it's all interwoven. So um, I hope to continue doing that work. And I'd love to hear from people if you have ideas for stories that should be told along these lines. Do you have a social media presence where you might want to connect with people? Yeah, it's all linked from my website. If you just go to my website, which is andrewleland.org, you can find me there and link to my social media. It's quailty, like uh, <laughs> like the bird quail with T-Y at the end. That's what I am on Instagram and uh, and Twitter. And who knows what I am on Mastodon. I'm on there, but I can't even, it's like, you know, just some alphabet soup of letters. And as usual, if you missed any of that information in the audio portion of the show, you can always find it in the show notes associated with each episode. And this episode is number 2330. Just go to www.eyesonsuccess.net. And also in the show notes this week, we'll have some other places where you can find some of Andrew's writings because he's done much more. And remember, you can always get Eyes on Success as a podcast, wherever you get your podcast, and even listen on your smart home device these days by saying, play the Eyes on Success podcast. So give some of those methods a shot and share the show with a friend. That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be playing some outtakes from Eyes on Success over the years. They say that nothing is ever perfect. Fortunately, though, with a little extra work, most mistakes can be fixed. And that even applies to the production of Eyes on Success. 
Sit back and enjoy some laughs with us as we enjoy some summer fun by sharing some humorous moments that never made it into the show. And you will certainly understand why when you hear them. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope you'll catch us next week for that fun episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.